Welcome to Open Banking Expo Unplugged, bringing you the brightest minds in open banking, open finance and beyond. Hello and welcome to episode one of Open Banking Expo Unplugged, a brand new series of podcasts delivered directly to your device. I'm Joe McGrath, Consulting Editor at Open Banking Expo magazine, and we're excited to be hosting the next three episodes in association with our friends at EY Canada. In this session, I'm delighted to be joined by industry pioneers Ben Harrison of Portage Ventures and Abhishek Sinha of EY. Thanks to both of you for taking the time to join us today. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for having us. So the background to today's podcast, last month, the Ministry of Finance announced the second phase of the Open Banking Consultation, or Consumer Directed Finance as it's better known. We believe there is cause for cautious optimism when it comes to a future with open banking innovation. Um, The next three episodes will centre around EY's recent consumer survey of 1,000 Canadians and research into how they wish to share their data. Data sharing and consumer trust is critical to any future open banking success, and this will inform our discussion today. But before we go any further, I'd like to invite our guests to tell us a bit about themselves. Abhishek, would you like to go first? Thanks, Joe. Yeah, um, I am a partner with EY, uh, based out of Toronto. I lead our banking technology practice in Canada and uh, have been quite a passionate supporter of the consumer-directed finance and open banking agenda for a number of years. Uh, you know, like most people, been tracking the events um, in, in the UK and in Europe and Australia and everywhere else. And we're really excited that this is coming here to Canada uh, albeit it's going to have its own Canadian flavor, uh, given that, you know, we are a little bit unique as a market. Uh, but uh, yeah, really excited to be here. Thanks, Joe. And Ben, tell us a bit more about yourself. Sure. I'm a, a, a partner and head of partnerships at Policy at Portage. For those not familiar with Portage, we're an early stage global fintech investor. And while it might seem strange to have uh, someone in a venture capital fund whose focus is on policy, um, it's actually not that surprising in, in the context of financial services, given that uh, so much of the uh, success of fintech ecosystems around the world largely re- relies on uh, legislation and regulation that levels playing field and makes it uh, uh, easier for uh, third parties to enter new markets. And we fundamentally believe open banking uh, will uh, will help accelerate the great progress that's already been made in, uh, in Canada as it relates to fintech uh, companies. Marvellous. So we've got two seasoned experts then ready to pick apart the current themes. Um, Abhishek, if I can come to you first, I'd like to start by asking, um, why is consumer-directed finance important for Canada? Yeah, um, I think there are three um, main reasons uh, in, in my view. The first is the Canadian financial services sector um, needs more competition. It needs more players. Um, it needs uh, uh, more innovation happening. And consumer-directed finance is one of probably many stimulants which would help push our financial services sector in that direction. I think we take uh, great pride in the stability of our financial services sector given you know, the last big crisis there. Um, and stability is good because we've got, you know, a number of large established players. We've got consumers who've got great confidence and trust in that ecosystem. Um, but it's not 
that there is no innovation, that innovation needs to happen and it needs to continue to accelerate if we're going to be globally competitive. So, so that's quite important. The second thing is, I think it is also important for Canadians because consumers value proposition, the value proposition that financial services organizations have for consumers, that value proposition equation probably needs improvement. It needs to change um, over a period of time. We've seen some wonderful business models coming out of uh, South Asia, some great business models coming out of uh, Europe and the UK. Um, and we think we need to have you know great business models come out of Canada. And uh, you know, partly that's the ambition. And uh, uh, Ben, I know that you talked about regulation at the intro there. Um, this is a question to both of you. You can, you, Ben, you might want to jump in first. But uh, what's the relevance of uh, Bill C eleven and the Quebec Bill sixty four when it comes to consumer directed finance? Should are these sort of things we should be looking at closely? Uh, short answer: yes. <laughs> <laughs> Slightly longer answer is yes. Um, I mean fundamentally what these are doing uh, uh, in in slightly different ways, but I don't think in, in meaningfully different ways, is providing consumers with a right, a legislated right that uh, gives them the ability to uh, move their data, uh, to, to take control of it, if you will. And we can, you know, use the term control, ownership, but fundamentally what it does is it gives the consumer uh, and hopefully in time the small business the right to decide who gets to use their data, who gets to see it, and then you know you build on all of the value propositions on top of that. Absent, absent something like this, you, you don't fundamentally have that right. And so the decisions around, and we're seeing this play out in, in the market today, some of the decisions around the types of data that's available, when that data is available, the circumstances under which that data is available, are not, not actually decisions that are being made by the consumer. And, and C11, uh, and the Quebec bill would fundamentally change that. Avishak, you're nodding there. Do you agree? Yeah, yeah, I fully agree. I think, you know, I, I, I take it maybe a step further, Ben, and, and, and suggest that this is the establishing the framework to get to a digital ID and then a step further to get to a self-sovereign digital ID. And yes, the data which consumers own is one part of it, but if we are going to progress in the digital age we live in, beyond the progress we've made till now, it has to be on the basis of a self-sovereign digital identity program. And that's something which a number of countries in the world are moving forward with and towards. And it is, I think, Bill C-11 and, and Bill 64 both um, will help establish that foundation for digital ID in Canada. Sorry, yeah. Ben, you're going to jump in there. You know, um, I, I think possibly another way that I think about this, and my answer to the first question, you know, there's a simple answer around like, this is just good for Canadians. The, the, there's no better way to inform, empower, and engage consumers than, you know, uh, let them decide uh, what happens with whatever that asset is. It, it creates that ownership. And I think that's, pretty, that's the simple answer. The complex answer is we're starting to put in place this, this infrastructure that, you know, the, the quote unquote digital economy, you know, of the future will be built on. And, and if we ever wondered what it, you know, for all the white papers and reports out there on, you know, the digital economy, I think the last, you know, eight months has clearly shown what 
what, what this looks like. And it's only reinforced the need for this infrastructure. Just like we put the infrastructure to, you know, connect Canada back in the, you know, 17, 1800s by railroad. Now we're talking about putting in some of this digital infrastructure that will enable us as a country uh, to, 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 to grow and, 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 and prosper. And I might just want one other small thing. There's a great quote in the, um, uh, one of the articles about the announcement of Michael Sabia being uh, appointed the new deputy minister uh, of, of finance. You know, Canada is a small country. We have to be innovative to draw capital in, to draw investment, to really help our companies grow. We've got to be innovative. And this sort of stuff is the, the key ingredient that will, I think, help us do that. It's interesting how you um, how you articulate that there and, and the way that you describe Canada. Um, this, might, this might be a nice segue for us to, to come back to you, um, uh, Abhishek, and ask about some of the findings of the recent survey that you did. Um, I know it's specifically on consumer-directed finance, but maybe you can outline a bit about why the survey is important. Yeah, I mean, uh, as, as Ben would sort of attest, we, we've been going through this consultative process uh, around a number of these key files um, for a number of years now. And in that process, I think we've got the industry well represented, all segments of the industry well represented. We've got uh, great representation from privacy advocates. We've got great representation from the government. So, so everyone's coming together. I think one voice which needs to be amplified in the conversation is the voice of Canadians. And, you know, in, in order to sort of help bring that voice to the table, we commissioned the survey. And the, the survey was intended to really answer three fundamental questions for Canadians. The first question we ask Canadians is, um, what data as consumers are you willing to share? And with whom are you willing to share that data? And the second question was, under what conditions would you be willing to share that data? And the third question was, what is your expectation in terms of value that you expect in return for sharing that data, right? So do I want to share that data? With whom do I want to share that data? Under what conditions and what do I want for it? And, and that's really what we, what the, the outcome of the survey is really finding answers to these fundamental questions and helping hopefully inform the um, the debate that is happening across Canada and with all of these stakeholders uh, to to push uh, this agenda forward. Well, if you don't mind, I think it would be quite good for us to use some of those findings as a springboard to to discuss the themes further. Um, I, I noticed that one thing from a, a cheeky glimpse that I got of the survey before we uh, started the podcast was that um, consumers uh, said that they prefer to share non-financial data. Uh, as their sort of initial step with establishing trust. Um, would you expect that to be the case, Ben? Is that what you, you sort of have as established reading when you're talking about open banking? Yeah, I think these sorts of exercises are great because it forces people to think about things that, that they might not otherwise be thinking about. And so does the finding that consumers, individuals would say, like, share the least risky data, you know, like the product data that's kind of generally there, no, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not surprised um, by that. What I think is interesting is to, to take some of those insights and then also compare them against a, a bit of reality. I mean, I think we all know we're living in a, a, a quasi-open banking environment today through things like screen scraping, right? And I think if you pose the question, you know, would 
you give your bank account information to a third party. So it could make your you know, experience in onboarding with a you know, company or getting access to this product. I think the answer would be fundamentally no. Like, why would I do that? But yet millions of Canadians today do, right? And so there, there's, you know, I, again, I, I, I like this sort of stuff. I think it's always important to, to sort of compare the intuitive kind of academic thinking versus some of the reality. And then like from that, draw out um, some useful insights. Like I think the key that this gets at, and rightfully so, is trust. And, and I would argue that, um, you know, fintechs have been trying to build and have to build trust, you know, open banking world or no open banking world. Like fundamentally, that's the start of all of this. And so the way that, that fintechs like Coho and, and Wealthsimple and Borowell, you know, try all, full disclosure, portfolio companies of ours, um, but the way they try and build trust is through the brand that, that they build, the, the experience that they provide, you know, the, the values and principles around transparency and inclusion. Like that, that to me is the starting point for all of this. And we'll need to continue to be the focus. This um, access to data becomes, I think, ideally, if you get the trust piece right at the start, then the access to data and getting people to maybe share in practice a bit more of the data than they at least say they're willing to becomes a bit easier. Abhishek, would you say that the the insights that you found most interesting from the survey, when I'm assuming you've had chance to go through it, you know, line by line, yeah. um, but would you would you say that the the insights that were most interesting did relate to that trust piece? Absolutely, I, I think it's it's front and center, and it sort of goes back to if we think uh, you know why open banking and why this movement is is actually happening. It started, you know. With uh, from a place of mistrust in an economy which didn't do really that well uh, at the last crisis. But from that place of mistrust, it sort of acquired a lot of virtues along the way. And most of the virtues around the points which Ben made around transparency, around, you know, uh, the, the individual's right to a certain uh, sovereignty over their own data, um, inclusion and all of those things. We found um, that there's a very strong correlation between demographics, loyalty, and openness to share data. So the Gen Z demographic, for example, is four times more likely to share account balance data than the 65 plus demographic, but less likely to share health data. Mm. Um, this is this is a very interesting signal because, you know, if you're a bank versus an insurance company, you, you actually would take away two different strategies from that. Um, the second key insight um, reinforces the high degree of trust uh, that we were just talking about. While Gen Z and millennials are three times more likely to switch financial institutions, according to the survey, more than 70% of people in that same category indicated a high degree of loyalty to their existing financial institution. And what this means is, that the newer players in the ecosystem are competing for a smaller addressable market and they have to really overcome, you know, the, the points which Ben was making is that convince the clients and bring them over slowly. And I think some of the key questions FI should be asking themselves would be, you know, does our customer acquisition strategy capture and capitalize on an individual's desire to share the data? based on the demographic? How can we drive value for an existing client base 
and enrich their relationship with us based on what we are willing to share now, right? So if they're willing to share preferences now, build trust with that, ask for a little more, earn the right to learn more about your clients by offering that kind of value proposition. And the third question they should be asking is, where can we draw on more personal preference data to continually evolve the banking experience for older demographics who are more likely to stay with us? So take away any reason they may have to leave and and do things differently. So, I mean, for for each demographic, I think there's a response warranted, whether they're likely to switch or not likely to switch. And it's all around, you know, building that trust incrementally. Ben, I I, I guess I should ask you, do you think that an awareness of these insights shapes how you do business and how you interact with, with companies in the sector? Do you consider, you know, the what the future will look like in terms of how they how they speak to their customers how they acquire new customers that sort of thing uh, yeah yes i mean i think at, at the core what abhishek is is highlighting is just the the importance of understanding your customer right like this is a really you know um this is a, a sort of a different lens on understanding customer segmentation it's not necessarily looking at by by age uh, you know, it's looking at it by like propensity or willingness to to, to share this data. Um, so fundamentally, it's absolutely critical uh, for any organization, be it fintech or bank, to to understand this. Um, I think probably part of my comments made in the last uh, question relate to the fact that, um, and and as I think this survey highlights, younger consumers. Um, of which, in general, the the average fintech user uh, or the average user of services like Wealthsimple and Coho and Borowell are 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 younger, and so there there already is that additional willingness to uh, to share some of this data. If in return the experience is better, the value is greater, uh, all of those sorts of things. I think what'll be interesting to to, to monitor and, and open banking potentially opens this up depending on exactly how we implement it in Canada will be, you know, there's a huge amount of inertia that customers feel in switching banks. You know, I, I agree that, you know, there, there's, there's loyalty for sure. I don't know how high it is in, in, you know, outside of this, of it's just so difficult to move uh, my account. In a true world of open banking where, you know, switching accounts actually becomes significantly easier or like getting new products becomes significantly easier and the onboarding process through the data sharing piece through digital ID becomes easier. I I do wonder how um, some of the uh, individuals today who are kind of saying, yes, I'm, I'm happy with what I have. Uh, uh, are saying that in the absence of understanding what like some of the potential and opportunity is here that that you know an open banking infrastructure could unleash. Uh, let's um, let's pick that apart a bit further. So, I, I guess before we get on to the the realization of the opportunity from a consumer's perspective, they also have to come to terms with this um, this need that they have for for control and the EY survey. Uh, from the findings that that we've seen, showed that consumers want 
to have a, a great deal of control on the, of the data that they're sharing. And they expect that privacy and security element to be built in. So I guess I'm asking you, Ben, how do you see, how do fintechs in your portfolio companies address that? I mean, I would say similarly to how banks would address it, right? Like, I think the really important thing to note generally about fintech is while some may not be regulated in the, the sense of there is a regulator in Ottawa who is responsible for this group, in almost all cases, they're partnering with organizations who are regulated. Um, or they're in some cases regulated themselves through some of the provincial. So. I, I think that they're just as mindful of these issues and just as mindful of the importance of things like like cyber um, uh, uh, fraud and all of the all of the tools that um, a regular FI would be using to keep their customers' data safe and secure would be all of the things that that fintechs would be thinking about. So I don't know that there would necessarily be a significant difference in in how either. Um, uh, organization would look at it. The main difference would be just the scope of, uh, 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 you know, of um, uh, of that focus. Abhishek, if I can just go back to the findings in the survey, because this is interesting. The, the, I, I'm trying to separate out the, the differences and the similarities here. So based on the survey, um, it seems that there is perhaps a higher bar for new entrants to build trust with consumers. So let, let's taking that survey result as as gospel, what would you say are the conditions that fintechs therefore need to create before consumers will consider sharing their data? Yeah, I, I mean, there's, there's a reason why, you know, fintechs are called the challengers, right? They are challenging. <laughs> and, um, you know, at, at some level, you know, the incumbents have established the bar, right? And just purely from, you know, a visibility, from a recall, brand value, brand recognition perspective, you know, there's trust, especially in, in Canada, is uh, strongly correlated with banks. Um, and so for the Canadian fintechs, it's much harder. Um, we've got a smaller um, market than a lot of the other markets where things have progressed a lot more. And in the smaller market, we've got, you know, these kinds of conditions which make it extremely hard. Um, you know, one thing which came out quite clearly when we, uh, you know, talked to the consumers is the granularity of consent was surprisingly quite high on people's mind. It's not that, okay, I am willing to share data. They actually want to control at, at a much more granular level what data they're sharing. So what do you want, my, my name and address? Or do you want my account numbers? Or do you want the balances? How are you going to use it? Is it for payments? Is it for identifying me? They, they want to understand that at a very granular level. And, and from a cyber perspective, which Ben mentioned, one thing which also was quite clear is they're not okay with um, you know, single-factor authentication. They, they want that multi-factor authentication. They want you know, either facial recognition or some sort of a biometric authentication to, uh, to demonstrate to them that uh, these organizations are taking all of these aspects really, really seriously. Uh, even in the absence of a regulator, it, it's something which, as, as a challenger, you actually want to set the bar higher. You actually want to create a competitive experience, not just from, you know, a customer experience standpoint, but how 
um, you deal with security and how you deal with guaranteeing the safety of the data that you're asking for. Ben, would that be? Would, would you agree with that? That that would be your starting point for any fintechs you're speaking with. Totally, and I mean that's what I was trying to get at. Is the bar is already high? This isn't two guys in a garage or two girls in a garage spinning up a you know fintech. It, it, there's millions of dollars. There's all sorts of requirements. Again, generally through partnerships because access to the financial services infrastructure in this country is severely limited. Uh, uh, and if you're not a bank, you generally have to then figure out what bank you'll partner with. If I, if I might just add, you know, building on this point of, of trust, and in particularly within the context of open banking, I, I, I think the really important piece, and again, putting aside like fintechs already are focused on this, they have to be, they, they don't have a business if they're not. But in the context of open banking, I think the really important thing around trust is actually that the government very clearly communicate this is an accredited, you know, again, depending on the model that's built, but, you know, trust in the system itself, not necessarily trust in the individual organization, but to start with trust, because leave that to the fintech, but trust in the system so that there's this open banking framework. There's a there's a whole process in place. There's an organization who's giving the authority, the government's authority to share data uh, and to collect data from consumers with their consent. Um, and that these aren't fly-by-night organizations who are just coming in and trying to gobble up your data. Like th th there's an approval regulatory process that's in place. I think that's the really, when we talk about trust within, again, the data sharing in the context of, of open banking, it's trust in the system that, that will be built uh, versus just trust in that fintech. Y you need to have both, I think, for, uh, for this to work. I love yeah. I love that 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 expression of gobbling up your data. I've got visions of fintechs on a screen as Pac-Man now, sort of <laughs> going 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 after people. Um, sorry, Abhishek, you you're going to add to those insights. Yeah, I was I was going to say I think uh, you know it the open banking uh, ecosystem, the trust in the system actually improves um, the security of the data. Um, I think this gobbling up. Uh, metaphor is probably more true for screen scraping because you've got no control over what they're gobbling up. Right? Um, and uh, I think there's a big component of education in this. And, you know, certainly the government has a role to play in it, but also the banks and the, and the fintechs and the entire ecosystem has an onus to help consumer understand the implications of the choices that they're making. Um, and we talked about it at, at the beginning um, of, of our discussion as well. Um, not knowing what is happening when you enter your user ID and password in a third-party website to say, hey, go get my data from the bank. Not knowing that, in the absence of that, hidden, or uh, hidden is probably the wrong word. It, it's In a way, it's concealed. It's, it's an implicit um, permission that you're asking for. When you change that implicit permission into an explicit permission, um, I think the consumer step back, think before they do those things. And the more informed the consumer is, I think the better the whole system is going to perform. Yeah, which is fundamentally why as this right comes into place, and it's going to take time for people to understand. I mean, it's got to pass, but it's going to take time for people to understand all these things. And so now is the time to be putting these pieces in place to, at the end of the day, make sure that consumers know what they're doing and that they feel agency and have agency over the, the data that they're producing. And like the, the open banking discussion should 
absolutely just be one part of this discussion. You know, data rights, uh, the, 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 the legislation applies, you know, across all sectors of the economy. It's just, you know, a nice tuck in to start this on, on open banking because conversations have already started all around the world and, you know, work is being done. So this would be the first sectoral expression of this data right. It, it should flow and it, it, it should um, go into other sectors as, as soon as is reasonably possible. I'm conscious of the fact that we've we've spent most of the conversation so far talking about trust, security and, and control. But Abhishek, the, obviously the survey was, was quite broad. So were there other insights um, that you thought were particularly interesting, which perhaps we haven't covered so far? Yeah, absolutely. I think the third question was one of the more interesting questions as we were designing the survey and, you know, trying to sort of leave open enough uh, room for Canadians to express themselves. Um, what we uncovered were the value drivers, we think, for Canadian consumers. And one message which really resonated above everything else is this. If I am, a, if I as a consumer share my data with you, your interactions with me must be incredibly personalized. Um, don't come to me with generic offers. I want as a consumer exclusivity. And I think this has massive implications for anyone looking to actually reap the benefits from an open banking perspective, because this has implications on how you manage the data, what type of analytics can you actually perform, how scalable the platforms. Like, there's a whole bunch of technical stuff in here, but it fundamentally boils down to, yes, I am willing to give up my privacy for convenience, but convenience alone isn't enough. I need convenience and I need exclusivity. So um, if I am to do this as a consumer, you better be relevant to me. I guess I, the question that I ask off the back of that, um, I don't know if you you have a view on this, Abhishek, but is that a mark of the sophistication of the of the market? I mean, if you would have if you would have got that response, well, I don't know. Do you think you would have got that response ten or, or even five years ago? You know, that expectation of of such personalized um, interactions. Do you think people would have been more willing to accept something more generic? I, I think. Uh, people are accepting more generic stuff. I think outside of, you know, a few players, there are not a lot of players in the ecosystem who can do personalization to that extent, offer tailored advice to me, uh, not through uh, human interaction every time as we traditionally see with financial advisors, but through technology, through the platform, using all the data I've decided to share about myself with you. Um, I use a lot of, I personally use a lot of um, third-party applications for different aspects. And I can tell you, like, um, I may have a, a credit card and this organization knows I have a credit card, but the ad they're showing me exactly is the same credit card, right? And the, the banner tells me that I should consider switching to this card. <laughs> that is not personalization. Um, and, and maybe we'll get there someday, but it was quite clear that, you know, consumers are asking for it. Like, if I'm going to tell you something about myself, you better not, you know, treat me as a, some, some, you know, someone in a pool of 50,000 others. Ben, you're, you're amused by that credit card analogy. 
Um, <laughs> is, is that your read of the market as well? You, you, you think that you know, generics where we've been and, it, and that's, that's going to go? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the 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 simple answer to that is is yes, we uh, as an industry and like financial services industry, not necessarily fintech or bank, you know, have ha- have not necessarily been delivering on the the value proposition that I think customers, you know, we think customers should get. I also think there's an element of like I don't know that customers know what 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 they should be getting and and again there's this like academic intuitive response to well yes I I should get value for the data I'm providing but people don't generally know like how much is their data worth as just sort of a a, a, a piece here and 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 then you know um, what am I doing again in practice I'm giving you know like the bar for value is quite low today in, in general. Uh, I think what, you know, open banking starts to, to, to deliver on. And, and, and again, it's even being done today through, through the, the, the other means of, of accessing data is, you know, the advice and insights that you start to be able to glean from behavior, uh, financial transaction behavior is like the first order, the first layer of, of value that, you know, I'd say, fintechs are probably leading the way on but but banks are as well and in part you know often facilitated through a partnership that they've established with you know with a fintech i think of td and flybits um, as a good example of trying to bring personalization into the banking experience so i, I think you know there's uh, lots of opportunity to improve um consumers as they get more comfortable and familiar with you know this idea of control will expect more and the industry as a whole should should step up to the challenge and the open banking infrastructure that we put in place will help us determine if we can actually deliver on uh, on, on that consumer you know, expectation if i can just ask a follow-up to that ben because you said consumers will expect more what are the industry implications then for people when they finally realize that their data doesn't just have a bit of value, that it's actually very valuable. What what will be the implications of that for the market? Um, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I don't I, I don't know that I know the answer to that yet. I think, you know, and this is part of the you know, this is part of the discussion going on right now in the open banking workshops, which actually I, I just finished before I, I joined this uh, this podcast. And the idea of controlling the scope of data that's made available um, through a, an approach where you define use cases and then like that data for that use case gets, gets shared versus, um, you know, defining the data that would be available, you know, to start and then over time and then letting the market decide. And, and I think, you know, our view would be the latter approach is the one that will get you and get the consumer fundamentally more data. But it's always critical to put like that data question in my mind in the context of like, what's the product or service that I'm getting access to? And, uh, you know, exercises in the past to explain open banking are generally not that useful. Um, because people don't think about it in in that mechanical sort of way. It's what am I actually getting, and how is this making my life better? Uh, and I think that's the lens you have to have on 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 this. 
Yeah, it's yeah. interesting. <laughs> Abhishek, you, you're going to jump in there with a, with an ad. Yeah, what, what we found is, and maybe it's a good way of paraphrases, if data is the new oil, then trust is the new currency. Um, you know, the consumers want royalty from, <laughs> from the data you're mining from them. Um, what we found is uh, that the royalty expected by the older demographic is much higher than the royalty expected by the younger demographic. So you can sort of devise strategies that address uh, the value exchange along um, your, your, your customer segmentation and appeal to those values for each one of those uh, sets of demographics. And it could be done quite smartly. Sorry, Abhishek. Um Sorry, just maybe to build on one other comment there, um, which is the I'll be I'd be interested to see how some of these questions or responses change in a world where there is a a, a government approved or you know yes. authorized infrastructure for data to be shared. Because right now that question in the average Canadian's mind is like. You know, I have this wallet, it's got all my data in it, and I'm going to open it up to like this group and this group and this group, right? But to know that the, da the data you make available is shared through secure, you know, uh, 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 you know infrastructure that, you know, is not going to be hacked and like all of this stuff, I, you know, I, I wonder if then that bar starts to go down a little bit and getting more people to engage older, younger, whatever, uh, to try some of these new services becomes, you know, a, a behavior that we see. I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. I think it's absolutely going to change and it's going to change, you know, next year and it's going to change again the year after. And I think as consumers get more informed um, and, you know, some of the actions or the discussions right now uh, turn into actions and we do see the establishment of that infrastructure, Ben, that you were talking about, um, I think there's going to be a different kind of acceptance uh, from a consumer perspective and a different kind of expectation um, from the service providers. Yeah. I think um, it would be it would be good just to ask you, Abhishek, if there are any plans to, um, or can you see an opportunity to um, revisit the, the work that you've done, um, sort of looking at this market in a few years? Because you say, you know, there, there was value in, in asking some of these questions again. Absolutely. And what sort of things do you think would be um, would you be looking for in terms of uh, trends or, or correlations? I think you know again um, a few important things would be there. Um, this this trust that we talked about, um, you know, we we try and place that trust. And I think Ben brought up a great point when he said that you know what Canadians need to do is to trust the ecosystem that needs to be built, not necessarily all of the different players in the ecosystem. If we know the system works, the system works. Um, and I think there's going to be a little bit of a move towards purely value-based relationships um, rather than boat anchoring people on historical relationships, which essentially means that the opportunity to innovate is open for everyone. Um, it's open for the incumbents. It's open for the challengers. It's open for you know organizations which may not exist today. 
And it goes back to the purpose. Why why go down this open banking route? And, and it is to innovate and make life better for people. And Ben, if I, if I can ask you, do you, when you have the conversations with your portfolio companies, do, do you, is it kind of assumed or, um, or it's just accepted now that there is going to be this move to value-based relationships or do you, is, do you still have to talk people through that? Oh, no. <laughs> I think, I mean, any, any fintech that's getting funding who, you know, thinks with a product mindset versus like the customer at the center of everything uh, is in trouble. Um, and so the, you know, the, the conversations that I have um, from the policy standpoint are more about like, will this happen? When will it happen? What will it look like? How do I start? But this is a really important point, right? Like, and this is, this is a really big challenge for the fintech. Trying to build a big business, like take Wellsimple as an example, right? Huge success, first fintech, you know, unicorn in Canada. They want to grow. Like their business has clearly, you know, they started Robo, built this current, you know, uh, trading platform, crypto, moving into cat. Like they're, they're building a financial services company, right? It is really difficult to build a financial services company when you don't know what the future will hold, when you don't know when data will be available, how it will be available, if it will be available in new ways. And I, I think if we do nothing else in, in this open banking phase two is like we get to a point of clarity as soon as possible. And whether that is we're moving forward with what I would agree is the right approach and that the advisory committee has outlined, you know, this kind of legislated regulatory approach to get it going and then let, you know, the entity that's going to implement this along with industry build it. Great. Or if we're not going to do that, we're going to take a, you know, more market-based approach. Like let's just get to the decision. So, so these companies can really start to define their plans and their growth plans for the next few years. Like we're at this really exciting point. I think, you know, Canadian FinTech is really starting to mature. But that maturity will be hampered if we do not have clarity on where we want to go as a country with this digital infrastructure that we're talking about sooner than later. And fundamentally, the the the, the loser in that will be the customer. Mm. I, I think um, it might be a nice uh, way to, to round it up. If I come back to you, Abhishek, for some final thoughts on what, what are your sort of expectations for open banking phase two? What, what do you expect the... the how do you expect the market to change? I think um, there's there's a lot of divergence still amongst uh, all of the different players in the Canadian ecosystem in terms of the shape this should take. Um, there are some things which I think are a little bit more settled than others. They're taking sh- uh, form right now. For example... You know, should there be a certification process to allow parties to get into this ecosystem? I think, yes. Um, how would that happen? Probably up in the air, um, you know, yet to be settled. Um, I think 18 months from now, when we look back, um, hopefully we would have established that mechanism, that dispute would have been um, settled. We would have all agreed on what the right thing to do here is. Um, a few sort of legislative pieces which are required to support open banking, um, whether it's a market-led or um, government-led initiative, those legislative pieces need to come together. Um, C11 is one example of that. Um, 
those things would happen um, hopefully in the next couple of years. Um, I hope that we could see a second or third unicorn come out of Canada <laughs> in, in the next five years. I, I really do. I think sure, we have the potential. Yeah. <laughs> Ben, you're cheering that on. Um, well, thank thank you to to both of you. I, I think you know the insights um, that we've just explored are absolutely fascinating. And as you say, Abhishek, there's plenty of scope there to to expand on that in the years to come. So maybe, maybe we'll we'll test some of the comments that we've made today in uh, in the the time we revisit this in a year's time or two years time. Um, just a reminder to everybody listening that this session is uh, also available to download on demand at openbankingexpo.com. Thanks again to EY for partnering with us on this podcast series and watch out for episode two where um, Abhishek will be back in conversation with our second guest, Senator Colin Deacon. Thank you very much and bye for now. <laughs>